city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. It's early November in Lakewood, Colorado, and at about 0158 hours in the early morning, Lakewood police officers and Edgewood police officers, which is a suburb next to Lakewood, got a report of shots fired. And the police officers in Lakewood are referred to as agents. So at that time, Agent James Davies and Agent Alberts responded to the call of shots fired. The initial call came from the vicinity of West 20th Avenue and Depew. Several minutes later, another call came in, again in the vicinity of West 20th Avenue, but a couple of blocks over on Fenton. Agents Davies and Alberts arrived on scene and started listening for sounds of gunfire because they didn't have a specific address. Patrol Sergeant Current who was a relatively new police sergeant who had not yet completed supervisory training, responded into the scene. And as she arrived with agents Maine and another agent, she got out of her car with the other officers and they spread out. And in spreading out, Sergeant Current ended up going over to the area of the 1900 block of Eaton Street and from a position of approximately 1960 while she was standing next to a tree she observed someone come out of the door at 1940 Eaton Street and fire a gun several times into the air. Sergeant Current reported that she could tell that it was a female because the female was backlit by the muzzle flash of the semi-automatic pistol that she's firing. However, Sergeant Current and the other agents that were on scene could not tell whether the person firing the gun into the air or firing at them. So Sergeant Current called a Code 1. A Code 1 stops all radio traffic except for emergency traffic and she called for additional police officers and agents to respond to the scene of a possible barricaded suspect armed with a handgun. Subsequent to that the Denver Police Department which is nearby and Lakewood and Edgewater are both suburbs of Denver sent Air One which is their helicopter team to provide security, observation, and overwatch. And as Air One arrived on the scene 
From 500 feet in the air, they began a series of aerials, which are circular movements where the helicopter is basically flying over the scene, which at that point would have been 1940 Eaton Street. Officers started deploying around the outer perimeter of what we refer to as the curtilage of the property. And the property sits, as you face the front door, east to west. And so the left side of the property, as you were to look facing the front door, would be the south side of that property. And as you looked to the right of the property while you faced the front door, that would be the north side. Now, originally, when Sergeant Current had observed the gunfire and the person coming out and then returning into the residence, she was behind a tree located proximate into the front of a three-story apartment building located at 1960 Eaton Street. So if you can picture this, the property where the gunfire was occurring was to the right of the apartment complex. And to further put this together for you, there was a six-foot wooden slat fence separating 1960 Eaton Street, which is the apartment complex, from 1940 Eaton Street, which was a one-story residential structure. There was a side yard separating 1940 from 1960. So again, you have a six-foot wooden slat fence on the south side curtilage of 1940, separating it from the three-story apartment complex next door at 1960. And that wooden slat fence continued on the west side of that residence and swung around to the north side. So if you can picture the scene, we have a single-story residence at 1940 Eaton Street surrounded on three sides, on south, on west, and north, with a six-foot wooden slat fence. The helicopter had been there for several minutes. And by the way, the radio call, because it was citywide, reached Lakewood Police Department at that moment was an agent by the name of Devaney Braley, who had been finishing up a prior call for service and overheard on his hand-packed portable radio a call for an agent to come and bring some items of tactical equipment. While Sergeant Current was at the scene, and as she called for additional officers, a fellow patrol sergeant by the name of Grady, who was also a hostage negotiator for the Lakewood Police Department's Special Weapons and Tactics Team, overheard the call and came to the scene. Together, the two officers briefly spoke about what they had, and a decision was made to secure the outer perimeter of the 1940 Eaton Street and prepare for an entry.
an entry team subsequently comprised of Sergeant Grady and Agent Kyle Okamura and finally Agent Braley upon his arrival was hastily gathered together. Now during this process and just prior to Agent Braley arriving on the scene Sergeant Current decided that she no longer needed Denver's helicopter Air One team. Now it's important to note because I'm sure you've all seen police helicopters being deployed in the field is that the helicopter was armed so to speak with a five million candle power sunlight that basically turns night literally into day and also an IR infrared camera and observation site so that they can see everything in complete darkness and it also had thermal imaging. So whether the light was on or not in the helicopter while it was doing aerials the observer in the aircraft could look down onto his screen which was infrared and thermal and could see the images of everyone and at the same time record everything that was happening. Agent Davies who was a white police officer very light complected in full uniform with a shaved head had assumed a position standing on a ladder which was laid on its side and he was standing on this ladder armed with his Glock 40 caliber pistol in his right hand and a flashlight in his left hand and he was on top of the fence with his arms over the fence for support and looking into the backyard to clear the backyard of any suspects that might be there. Now subsequent to the entry team being established Sergeant Grady had called into the residence because they managed to get a telephone number for that residence and had spoken to a female by the name of Ruiz and had advised Miss Ruiz that police officers had surrounded the house and ordered Ruiz to tell all occupants in the residence to come outside unarmed with their hands up. After this order was given, Ruiz exited the residence with two other male occupants, all of whom were unarmed. Miss Ruiz had advised Sergeant Grady that there were three pit bull dogs inside the house. And so the officers made a decision that there still might be a barricaded armed suspect inside that house along with three pit bulls. Sergeant Current had dismissed the helicopter. And so the entry team now comprised of Agent Devaney Braley in the lead followed by Sergeant Grady and followed by Agent Kyle Okamura 
formed what is referred to in tactical language as a stick. And the officers entered the residence and began searching. Now during this process, agent, hang on producer, let me just catch up again. Now during this process, agent Davies and agent Alberts, who were buddied up, split off with agent Alberts being requested to form part of the entry team. Now that never happened. So this left agent Davies on the fence by himself on the south side. Once the officers had entered the residence and cleared most of the residence except for two bedrooms where there were pit bulls, they determined that they could not continue to search the residence. And so the plan was made very hastily to exit the residence from a door that was on the south side that led out into that yard between the 1940 residence and the 1960 three-story apartment complex. The first person out the door was Agent Braley, and it was total darkness out there. Agent Braley was armed with an AR-15 M4 military configuration urban rifle on which was mounted a flashlight and an occluded eye gun sight referred to as an EOTech. Now an occluded eye gun sight is one that places not a physical but a holographic sight image on whatever target it is pointed at. As Agent Braley exited the south side door, he began a pincer maneuver where he checked his left side in the corner to make sure there was no suspect there and using the flashlight on the end of his assault rifle to illuminate the area, gradually moved to his left. Now immediately to his right was a covered carport that had vinyl wall covering and a vehicle inside the carport. The officer could not see through the walls of vinyl, so he needed to do a tactical maneuver referred to as slicing the pie. So as he gradually stepped to his left, sidestepping around this covered carport, he cleared the far right corner of the carport and began illuminating that six-foot wooden slat fence that separated the two properties. As he turned the corner and began his illumination, he heard a voice call out, which was actually Agent Davies, who called out, Hey, I'm over here. Unfortunately, Agent Braley, who stated he became immediately scared, raised up his rifle and saw a person that he described as a dark-complected Mexican male who he did not recognize. And that person was holding a black steel pistol. And as he told the man to drop his gun, he stated that the individual started to raise his gun hand up towards him. And the officer stated in fear of his life, immediately fired five rounds in rapid succession 
as he started to disengage away from the threat. Tragically, first round struck Officer Daly's square in the face, directly beneath his left eye, and he was killed instantly, being shot off of the fence and onto his back. With four more rounds penetrating through the fence and into the second story wall and electrical conduit of the three-story apartment complex. The report of shots fired was immediately sent out and the officers began an immediate search for who they believed to be an outstanding suspect with a weapon. Unfortunately, when they got around to the south side perimeter fence, they found Officer Davies on his back in full uniform, mortally wounded. When we come back, Dr. Paul Michael, our forensic death investigations team vision expert, and I will forensically unpack this case. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So, Paul, let's unpack this case forensically and discuss what exactly happened on that November early morning back in Lakewood, Colorado. Yes. Well, as in many, many situations, the officers start out from the very beginning with an inherent disadvantage. They're behind the curve. They are responding to somebody else's actions and reports that may or may not be accurate about somebody else's actions. In this case, there are reports of a shooting. It wasn't real exact information that they had. They had to respond to the area and gain initial information about events that had already been in progress when the officers were off scene. So they're coming into an area where it's dark. They are not specifically aware of the physical environment that people who are acting in the house would have intimate knowledge of because they've been in that environment before. They've been in that environment in a well-lighted situation. Now the officers are responding and identifying the location of the activity, but not knowing exactly what is going on. So from the beginning, they're behind the curve. They don't know who are the actors. The specifics of where the location is 
or what is inside the location, what's the motivation for the actors and what's their degree of motivation to continue to act? So these are all unknowns and the officers enter the scene under these conditions. And you know, as I've indicated before, it's early November and having been out to that scene under the exact same circumstances, and we'll talk forensically about how we reconstructed this thing, but it was absolutely pitch black. There was no ambient light uh, located anywhere near uh, the scene where this shooting took place. And to make matters worse from the officer's standpoint, the light that they bring with them to the scene also identifies their position and also provides a bad actor with more opportunity to identify the officers as a target if that's their intent. And again, the officers don't know what the intent is and the degree of motivation that the actors at the scene have towards acting against other potential victims and the officers. And you know, you raise a really good point there because the officers have limited knowledge uh, of what the scene is all about. Uh, in going back over the discovery evidence, we found that none of them had ever been to that residence or uh, really had had any calls for service on that street before. So they really didn't have any information. And this is an important thing for a supervisor to understand because the object of the game here is to collect intelligence information so that officers can figure out more or less what they have and then develop some sort of cohesive plan on how they're going to respond to it. Yes. And again, the advantage of lighting, remember that lighting comes from a source. All lighting has to come from a source and travel away from that source. In the case of the police officer who are using their flashlights, the, the light that they have comes from that source also locates their position. And if you have a suspect who is in the dark, he is at a great advantage of being able to see where the officer is and how he's moving and what would be the suspect's potential target if he had intent of using deadly force against the officers. That's, ab that's absolutely correct. You know, one of the problems that we had here, uh, supervisory and also tactically, is we had about 30 officers at this scene at one point. And for a case like this, this type of incident, that was really uh, a significant amount of officers. It actually, you know, my impression was it was too many officers because you can actually deploy too many officers, you know, into a scene. But the most important thing is once you have officers allocated, you need to keep uh, aware as a supervisor of where these officers, first of all, how many officers you have. Number two, how are you going to deploy them and where are you going to deploy them? And then you need to keep track of where they're deployed. That's, that's right. And a great asset that was available to the Lakewood Police Department was Denver's Air One, because Air One could deploy an enormous amount of light. So number one with Air One would be that it could deploy daylight conditions to the whole backyard, to the whole area as needed, plus its vantage point. 
it had the vantage point of being elevated up in the air. And unlike the officers, it could adjust their vantage point up and down to get a better uh, view of the area or a larger view of the area as needed. And in my experience, the helicopters are used to describe the perimeter to the officers on the ground where the officers on the ground cannot see the perimeter, cannot see the full layout of the crime scene and or if somebody is escaping from the crime scene. Right. And, you know, one of the things that uh, the officers have to keep in mind, and especially the supervisor, is if you are going to have people fleeing from the scene. Because, you know, when we, we get to these scenes, we have, and Paul, you were in law enforcement, okay, before you, you know, got involved in, in the medical field. And, you know, we need to think of all sorts of different scenarios. And, of course, one of those scenarios is that maybe a suspect or maybe one uh, more than one suspect has actually fled from that scene. So what we're listening for are dogs barking. Uh, we're listening for uh, fences being climbed over, people falling into things because it's pitch black, right? And we're, we're listening for calls for service uh, of suspicious people running through a yard and things like that. In this case, none of those calls came forward. That's that's true. The other thing is, is that a suspect could leave the primary location, assume a secondary position outside the house to ambush officers. Absolutely. And we have yeah. to be very careful about that. You know, just last year in 19, uh, in uh, 2017, we had a 125 percent increase over the previous years in officers being murdered by ambush. So that is certainly a concern for officers, especially today. Yes. And uh, the willingness to do grievous harm to the officers from a vantage point that is superior to that which the responding officer would have. And in almost all cases, a suspect who's lying in wait for officers or who is setting them up knows what the officer's initial actions are going to be. So whatever we can do to view the suspect and to contain visually the crime scene from a position such as a helicopter is to a great advantage. Absolutely. And and here we had every type of elevated resource or platform of observation in that helicopter. We had the, the starlight, uh, you know, five million candle power, uh, you know, light above lighting everything, like you said, like it's daytime, but we also had infrared and we had thermal. So even if the light wasn't going to work and someone hid themselves, concealed themselves inside a bush or underneath uh, some sort of darkened object, uh, the, the thermal imaging and the IR would still take into effect and we'd still see these people, at least an image of these people. But in this yes. particular case, because the helicopter had been dismissed, we had nothing. We were literally blind out there. And the helicopter could also be used to monitor the doors and windows to see if anybody is opening or escaping from them. There is also the issue that there are a number of pit bulls uh, in the house that could 
either by their own actions be released or because of somebody else's actions be released into the yard, which would completely change the playing field for the officers and how they would have to respond. And, you know, that's a good point, because I believe that's one of the reasons that none of the perimeter officers uh, ever uh, came over the fence or walked through the yard to get into the inner perimeter. And just for the audience, we have two basic perimeters. We have an inner perimeter and an outer perimeter. So Officer Davies and several other officers are on the outside curtilage of the, the 1940 uh, property. Nobody is in the backyard, and it's exactly because of what you said, Paul. Number one, there might be a suspect there, but number two, the dogs could be released there. Yes, and uh, maintaining the positions of the officers is, is accomplished more easily with the use of the helicopter because it has a panoramic view in good light from up above because not all the activities at all the time, could the officer's actions or positions be monitored because of intervening effects of what unknown suspects may or may not be doing. Absolutely. So once that helicopter's gone, then the overwatch is gone with them. So now we're stuck with the officers inside the residence and they're searching uh, inside a residence that is both light and dark, and then uh, the beginning of the stick uh, or the search team, which is at that point your point man was Agent Braley, is coming outside from a lighted, semi-lighted position inside the house or semi-lighted environment inside the house into a completely darkened environment. Hey, Paul, because you're such a great uh, expert on vision. Can you just tell us a little bit about how the eye works and also, you know, in, in, in various different lighting conditions, but also how that body is, is affected vision-wise uh, in, in these short uh, time periods and how that can negatively affect an officer's uh, sense of observation, vision, and perception? Well, that's, that's an excellent, excellent point that I don't think can be stressed enough. And uh, the one thing I would ask everybody hearing this is to write down number one is that light adaption occurs almost instantaneously. So if you're in a dark environment and you go into a house where there may be lighting or there may be flashlights being uh, deployed, the human eye almost instantaneously adapts to that higher level of lighting which leads to point number two. It takes up to almost 40 minutes to dark adapt. So once we are, let's say we start out at the beginning dark adapted from being out in the dark, we go into a lighted house or are, uh, we're looking in the direction where a flashlight is being deployed, the light time vision, the nighttime vision is instantaneously what we call bleached. It's lost. And when we go into a darker environment, we lose our ability to see detail. And the only place that we can see detail is where there happens to be a beam of light. Going back to the helicopter, if the helicopter was still deployed overhead, the backyard would all be daylight. That would have been wonderful. But the officers going into the environment that it's dark 
they are night blinded. And the only vision they have is that which is in the cone of the light of their lighting devices. You know, Paul, you, you bring up something that to me is absolutely amazing uh, because I think uh, a lot of people think that once you go from a, a lighted environment into a darkened environment, you can actually adjust pretty quickly. But you're indicating that it could take up to 40 minutes uh, for a person to become uh, completely acclimated to a darkened environment. And even after that 40 minutes in the darkened environment, unless there is a strong light there, they are still working under what we call scotopic or nighttime vision, which is devoid of seeing fine detail and devoid of seeing color. It is only in bright light that we have the ability to see fine detail and the perception of color. Is that brought on by rods and cones, or how does that whole color thing work? Well, um, cones are the neurological receptors in the eye that give us fine detail and color perception. And that's very nice. That's high acuity vision, but it comes at the cost that it has to be under bright light. It has to be high intensity daylight light that we are able to see detail and color perception. In the darkness, in uh, a moonless night, dark night out in the desert, without any artificial source of light around, all we can see is vague shapes. Now, at the beginning of our exposure in the darkness, if we've been previously exposed to a bright light, it is extremely, extremely bad. But after 40 minutes, it gets somewhat better, but we're still not at the point where you could sit and read a book under in, in the darkness. So you really don't see detail in the darkness unless we bring artificial source of light with us. Now, law enforcement personnel are held to a very, very high standard. Uh, a predatory animal hunting in the dark, uh, a mountain lion in Colorado going after a deer, it, he's not held accountable if he makes a mistake. And he doesn't have to determine whether it's a male or a female or a young deer that he's attacking. All he does is see the movement, assumes what it is, and attacks. A police officer is behind the curve, has to make the assessment of somebody else's actions that are already in progress. So the officer has to have daylight conditions to be able to see well enough to do that. So it's a very high critical amount of visual discrimination that we request of our officers to be able to do their jobs and hold them legally responsible for making the correct assessment and response. So very tough job. So, Paul, let me ask you this question. Okay, so we've got Agent Braley as the, the point man in the stick, and he's inside that 1940 residence, and he's going through alternating areas or environments of lightness and dark, and also, you know, he's got that powerful uh, flashlight at the end of his M4 where he's lighting things up. And then from that point, he goes from that environment which is sort of lights on, lights off, right? Because sometimes yes. they don't keep those lights on all the time because they betray their positions. 
Correct. So he's doing a lot of light on, light off. And then from there, he steps outside that south uh, laundry room door out into that pure pitch blackness. So what's going on with his vision at that time? Well, he would be what we call bleached. His his um, dark vision or scotopic vision, as it's scientifically called, has been bleached. So he's at the light adaption level and he goes into the darkness. Now, from an adversary or a suspect who has been in the darkness, the the suspect would have an advantage over the officer because the suspect knows who the officer is by his actions and because he has a shiny shield and because he's been playing with a light. The suspect could be in any position that would not be discernible to the officer. And the suspect would know what his intentions are as far as harming an officer. The officer does not know the intentions of anybody that he encounters. And it would require good enough vision, which one would not have in the dark, to uh, determine the facial features of a brother officer half or three quarters hiding behind a uh, opaque wall or fence. Wow. You know, when we come back from this break, Paul, let's talk about how stress affects vision. Because Agent Braley, uh, when he testified, he said that he was pretty scared uh, when he heard someone who happened to be Agent Davies call out, hey, I'm over here. So let's talk about that and then Let's just make things a little bit more complicated and also talk about how an occluded eye gun sight works and how, when a person is stress inoculated, how is that going to affect the vision? And I'll talk about how it affects hearing. When we come back, you're on a thread of evidence at America Out Loud. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. So, Paul, take us back to Agent Braley and what happens with our vision when we're stress-inoculated. Now, we've already got the problems that you've talked about very articulately with respect to scotopic vision. But let's add to that, and maybe you can discuss for our audience how stress affects vision. Well, we live in our brains. That's, that's where we are. And in a situation such as this, we're in the uh, what doctors call the adrenergic uh, division of the sympathetic nervous system. And this is equivalent to taking amphetamines. When a person takes artificial amphetamines, they're mimicking the sympathetic or also called adrenergic branch of the autonomic nervous system. Now, that's more than most 
people need to memorize. But basically, you're hyped up. And for a good reason, and it's not under your control, it is under the very basic functions of the brain. This is fight or flight. And the pupil dilates, the muscles start trembling, the heart is racing, the digestive tract shuts down, and you're in a state of controlled panic. And this is why police are trained the way they are, to put them in an adrenergic uh, situation and to see to what extent they can be trained to control the fight or flight uh, response and to give an appropriate response. But keep in mind, we are all limited by the uh, limitations of us being innately human. So here is a person who is in a controlled near panic situation because he does not know what degree of threat he is facing in a visually unfriendly and disadvantaged environment. You know, that that's absolutely amazing. Now, I know uh, when people are stress inoculated, we have something called the basal BASAL metabolic rate, and that's measured generally by respiration, blood pressure, and heart rate. Okay, so the more jacked up you get, like you said, good analogy would be you're under the influence of amphetamines or stimulants, the body drops those survival chemicals into itself instantaneously, you have no control over the drop, and it adrenalizes. So it sends in adrenaline, which we know is a very powerful stimulant, endorphins, and dopamine, which are pain blockers, dopamine being a euphoric pain blocker. And they affect both the vision, perception, and the hearing. For instance, on the hearing side, it creates uh, a, a situation of diminished hearing, which is called auditory occlusion, or a complete loss of hearing, which is auditory exclusion. Now, I know when I was involved in the forensic analysis of this case, Paul, as you can remember, uh, Davies uh, set out to state it out. He was on the fence, and he set out to, uh, to Bradley, who he recognized, and he said, hey, I'm over here just like he would say to another partner officer. But because, and this is, you know, my uh, forensic speculation and opinion, but based on, you know, a lot of experience and research, that was not heard the same way by Agent Braley. Yes. And, I, and I think it's because he's jacked up just like he said he was. He said he was very scared. He's jacked up. So he is experiencing not auditory exclusion but auditory occlusion yes and the same thing happens in the eye we get yeah let's talk about that we get tunnel vision is that we are so intently focusing on whatever it was in the environment that drew our attention it is to the exclusion of perceiving things in the periphery that is how the eye the eye works however we fill in the missing parts with expectation. What we think is in the periphery, in the, in the blind spots of our eyes. Because under this uh, very, very dramatic situation where we're asked to function, we lose our vision in the periphery because we are so concentrating 
on top dead center where our vision is, but our brain puts in from memory and expectation what it believes should be in the perimeter. And you know, Paul, you brought up something very interesting. I'm going to draw on my forensic psych background, and that uh, that dynamic that you're referring to is also, in psychological terms, is referred to as plausible possibilities. Not necessarily something that is factually happening, but something that the officer perceives as happening because there is no cognitive processing going on. It's all, it's all uh, midbrain stuff, uh, which is in the subconscious mind, and the brain pulls out what it seems to believe is the most plausible of circumstances, even though we know factually we've got a guy who's Officer Davies or Agent Davies on the fence who's in full uniform. Yeah, and this is a situation that all of us deal with to a, a much lesser degree every day. For example, we have a blind spot in each eye. We have an anatomical spot out to the temporal side where we don't see about 23 degrees from where we're top dead center of our vision, where we're fixating or where we're pointing our vision. But every day we go through it and we don't experience this blind spot because the brain fills in in that blind spot yeah. in our conscious awareness, what it thinks should be there. Exactly. And, you know, and I didn't want to mislead the public a little bit. It was a, uh, it was a forensic fact that Agent Davies was in full uniform. But don't forget, most of Agent Davies' uniform is concealed by what? That fence. Okay? That's and, right. And so the only thing he's got is maybe a name tape, you know, a name tag, on his breast pocket he might have part of a badge showing and he might have which we found he did have uh, shoulder insignia but here was the thing he clearly wasn't a dark complected mexican male as a matter of fact he was a naturalized american citizen from great britain and he had one of the whitest complexions <laughs> of a caucasian i had ever seen and but when this we this is completely consistent with what we know about vision because the officer Brillo or um, uh, the officer who came in with the M4 rifle, uh, Brayley, Brayley, um, his vision was impaired. So it would be unreasonable to ask an officer or any other human being to discriminate between somebody who is light colored in complexion or if somebody has an olive complexion. Your vision system was not designed for this. You cannot see that in the dark. And that that's pretty interesting. You know, uh, as you know, Paul, and we used one of our other uh, great members of our forensic death investigations team, uh, Lance Martini, who's our ballistic scientist. And when we went out to the scene, I had the M4 uh, weapon system already built with the EOTIC uh, occluded eye gun sight because it just happens to be one of my weapon systems. The only thing I had to do uh, with that platform is, is put on the same type of uh, surefire flashlight uh, that Bradley had mounted on his gun, but everything uh, to his weapon system and my weapon system was exactly identical. And, uh, you know, we have a, a special pair of glasses that have a video camera in the second, uh, in the center, so we can see pretty much, uh, 
you know, forensically, not not physically, but forensically, we can see what an officer would see when they look through that site. And just for the members of the audience that are not familiar with these uh, sighting terms, an OEG stands for Occluded Eye Gun Sight. And what it is, is a sighting device that's on the weapon that allows the officer to look with both eyes open. You've got to have both eyes open or else you don't see the holographic image that is superimposed on a target. So it is not a laser sight. It is an occluded eye gun sight with a superimposed holographic image on whatever target you are pointing at. And of course, he used that Surefire flashlight to illuminate that target, and we had to completely reproduce that experience. And the the red dot occludes that which you are aiming at. It puts the red dot on top of the target, but does not aid and, in fact, uh, hinders the ability to identify further the target. Now, so while aiming and the red light's on it, one does not see as well as if the red dot were not on it. Now, Paul, when do you think the decision to fire was made by Braley? It would have to have been prior to shouldering the weapon in the firing position. So he comes out, and we watched what he did, and, and we mimicked that, and he's got the weapon at the low ready position, which means it's beneath the shoulder, tucked into the shoulder, and down at about a 45-degree angle. And he's bringing that weapon up and down, up and down, as he's slicing the pie, as he's getting around, and he's checking that left-hand corner. So don't forget, he comes out through that, that south end um, laundry room door, and he has to immediately clear his six to his 90, okay? So right off of his left shoulder, he's got to immediately illuminate that corner because he doesn't want to get bushwhacked there. And then he's got to clear, uh, clear that door. He has to come down, clear that left-hand corner, and then start sidestepping around this covered carport and what we refer to as slicing the pie. Okay, then he goes to the opposite corner of the fence, which would be the um, southwest corner of that fence, and now he's slipping around the corner of that carport and starting to illuminate. But as he starts to illuminate, that's when Agent Davies, uh, he doesn't yell it, he just said it in a, in a conversational voice, according to Agent Braley which is somewhat strange because it's not a suspect yelling at you. And by the way, a suspect, if they were going to ambush you, they wouldn't, gonna, they wouldn't give out their, their location whatsoever. They'd simply bushwhack you. But again, this is this whole plausible possibilities thing that is going on in, uh, in Braley's mind, according to what he's saying. He thinks that there is a bad guy out there. And so as he, as he makes the turn and he's in that low-ready position, that's when we believe that the decision to shoot was made, correct? That is correct. And I would go back to the helicopter. Had the helicopter given a report of conditions to the officers on the ground and said there is one officer uh, in the backyard behind a position of concealment, um, this would have been knowledge that would have been fresh in the mind 
of the officers entering into the backyard. That's correct. And when all of those officers uh, gave testimony and they were deposed, uh, including in court, uh, they all said that they, they didn't know anything about you know who was uh, on the curtilage, who was on the outer perimeter of that house. And uh, Agent Braley said he was the most surprised person uh, of anybody to find out that he had actually tragically shot and killed uh, a brother officer in uniform. Uh, It's just one of the most tragic uh, yet complicated cases that our team would, would take on. Yes, and it was a, a, a terrible situation for everybody involved. And, and you know, uh, just for, for the audience, we used several experts uh, to reconstruct this case. Because don't forget, one of the problems that we have as forensic experts is that we've got to go in and uh, evidence has already been removed from the scene. Uh, we got this case uh, I think it was uh, almost two years after the case. Uh, you know, we got to testify almost two years after the case, uh, the incident had actually occurred. So we had to really reconstitute everything. It's it's quite different from CSI Miami Beach, right? And and so actually our job is much harder. So we used myself and we used you as our vision expert. We used Lance Martini, our ballistic scientist, and we also used. Uh, Dr. Richard Zernicki, who is a, a Ph.D. Um, engineer, and he's a you know he's a certified engineer. And we came and we use every bit of equipment that law enforcement uses. We use the Forbes 360, uh, which is a laser measuring device that I think we measured. If people can believe this, we measured approximately five million points in this crime scene in a 360 degree 3D reconstruction. And that includes reconstructing the firing platform, reconducing the flashlight and the Glock that uh, Officer Davies was using. We used a surrogate, which means we used a a life, uh, a living model, which was a person exactly uh, Officer Davies's height and weight, I think he was uh, about 5'8", uh, and he was about 174 pounds with a shaved head. Uh, we used a Caucasian model for that and just completely reproduced that. And, you know, speaking of, of forensics, Paul, let's take a few minutes and talk about you and, and how you got into this line of work, and let's talk a little bit about your background and, and what you do. Well, my background had been I had graduated from California State University at Long Beach with a bachelor's degree in perceptual psychology, and I entered the uh, Huntington Beach, California uh, Reserve Police Officer Program, went through the academy, and I was a line reserve police officer for seven years. And during that time, I also entered optometry school, and frequently working at night, we had people who were witnesses to crimes or to car collisions, give an accounting that I know they couldn't have seen what they said they saw. There couldn't have been somebody making facial eyewitness identification of a suspect at a distance of 45 yards while running in the dark. It was just physically impossible for the eye to do that. And what the sincere and helpful citizen Uh, reporting this to the police was actually doing was cognition 
of what makes sense, what he would have seen. So what does that mean? What's that mean for our audience, Paul, breaking that, that term down? There's a difference between what the eye can see as a sensory organ and what the person puts together in their brain to make sense. So if the suspect uh, is seen in the dark and um, there isn't good resolution of his facial features or identification, but later the suspect returns to the scene and is seen much closer, the person is likely to, in his brain, put the features that he is now able to see that the suspect is closer to him and in better lighting as to have been the features he would have seen in the dark at a longer distance. Paul, would you refer to that as confirmation bias? Is that something similar to confirmation bias? That is exactly confirmation bias. That information uh, later obtained confirms uh, what they think they saw during the first incident. And the person comes to believe that what he saw in the second instance was the same as what he saw in the earlier instance. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and our vision expert and member of our forensic death investigation team, Dr. Paul Michael, on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.